Well, good evening. If you would, open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I heard from Deb Sparks today. She said that uh, next week, Novi is scheduled for her sixth esophagus dilation, which is the polite way of saying she's having her throat stretched for the sixth time. And hopefully after that, those doctors and her kidney doctors will okay her to have uh, surgery on the hernia that's in the lower part of esophagus, causing all this trouble for her. So we want to remember them in, in prayer. And I went to, uh, to the bedside of Brother Cecil Thornberry this morning, and the, the time is short. And uh, if you haven't been already, it, it certainly is time that we pray that the Lord take him home quickly. I thought about this driving here this evening. I am, uh, I don't ever want to, for you to think I'm overly uh, serious. Uh, maybe I am turning into a grouchy old man. I don't know. Um, but the effort is for your sakes in this. I take this time that we have so seriously. Uh, I devote nearly every waking moment to it from Sunday till tonight, getting ready to preach a message of Christ to you. And I have absolutely no tolerance for playing games with the gospel. As Brother Henry used to say that about people treating this like a this and our sister churches, our association with folks as a, as a poor man's country club uh, for their own benefit. I have no tolerance for it, and I make no apologies for that. And it's for your sake. Because as Sheila and I were talking this morning, sooner or later, if the Lord tarries, every one of us is going to be laying where Cecil's laying. And I'm thankful uh, that the Lord's kept us here from playing those those kind of games. Because if we had, what good would that be doing our brother right now? You walk into a home like that, there's a, a brother or sister on the precipice of eternity getting ready to be satisfied because he's going to open his eyes and see Christ. And there's a grieving family. What good playing games have done any of them or you, or me, when we find ourselves in that situation. And I say all that to say, bear with my grumpiness sometimes about um, It's an honest effort, at any rate, for our good. For what it's worth. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Or verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. This is worthy that every son of Adam believeth that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners, of whom I am chief. We'll end our reading there. Look with me, if you would, at Genesis chapter 38. This will serve as our text this evening. Genesis chapter 38. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son. And he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son. And called his name Shelah. And he was at Chezeb when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah, my son, be grown. For, he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted, and went up into his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put off her widow's garments from off her, and covered her with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a, a pledge, till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, and thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her, and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, and laid by her veil from her, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend the Adullamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he found her not. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be ashamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after, that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? 
And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and the bracelet and the staff? And Judah recognized them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son. So he knew her again no more. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, holy and reverent is your matchless name. Father, we come carefully and reverently into your awesome, holy presence. So thankful that we can come before a throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father, pleading the obedience, the righteousness, the blood, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, how thankful we are that you've said in your word that we're accepted in the beloved, not in what we've done or what we haven't done, but in Christ, the beloved. We're so thankful. And Father, we come before you pleading that one more time you'd bless your word as it's preached to us. Bless the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Cause it to go forth in power that, Father, you would use it to reveal to us one more time the glory of Christ our Savior. And Father, I pray you'd cause faith to be mixed in what we hear. Cause each heart here to see the redemptive glory of Christ the Savior, wonder of wonders, that by his obedience and by his sacrifice, he has made his people to be perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. Father, cause us to truly believe in him and rest in him. He's finished the work. Father, what we pray for ourselves, we pray for your people, wherever they might be meeting together right now. Father, bless your word where it's preached. In this dark, dark day, Father, how we pray that you'd show us your glory, that you'd cause a revival to spring out in the land, that people might be called to Christ our Savior, faith and love for him. And Father, we pray blessing for your people that you brought into the time of trouble and trial. We pray for Novi that you'd undertake in her behalf, that you'd Give the doctors and nurses a wisdom to, to restore her to health and make her feel better. We pray for Haley that you continue to strengthen and, and heal her. Father, we pray for our brother Cecil that you'd take him home quickly. Deliver him from this clay prison and this world of sin. Father, bring him home quickly, we pray. Now, all these things we ask, Father, in that name which is above every name. The name of Christ our Savior. Now, our text tonight that I just read is another one of these stories that we find seemingly often in the book of Genesis that just make me blush when I read them. I mean, the the things that are discussed in this chapter are just shameful, aren't they? And the book of Genesis has been full of those kind of stories. And yet, one more time tonight, we're going to see again how God brings good out of evil. He gives us a picture in this awful, sordid tale of how it is God completely saves sinners from their sin. I want to know about that, don't you? Now, I don't know all of the reasons, certainly, that the Holy Spirit moved Moses to to write this story. He could have skipped over it completely, and all of this that happened would have been hidden from us. But the Holy Spirit moved him to write, write this. And I'm sure that 
one of the reasons that he exposes the wickedness of so many people throughout the scripture is first of all, for our benefit. So we see our sin. I mean, the nature of the people that we read about here, that's our nature. And if we haven't done the things that's in this chapter, I can tell you why. God's kept us from it and that's the only reason. This is our nature. This is our sin. We're just like them. And second, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit has has moved the the writers of Scripture to expose the, the wickedness of people in this way so that you and I can see God's glory and how despite of this wickedness, God saves His people still. He still saves them, even even though they're so wicked. It's just more than we can imagine, hardly. God still completely saves real, genuine sinners from all of their sin, washes them white as snow. So I've titled the message tonight, Tamar, a type of the redeemed. I have four points that I want to use to paint this picture of Tamar as a picture of the redeemed. Number one is this, I want us to see the wickedness of our sin. Verse 7 says, In Ur, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And we don't know exactly what it was that Ur did, but uh, most everybody assumes this is some sort of spiritual wickedness that he did. Because in other places throughout Scripture, it's spiritual wickedness that causes God to immediately kill a person. I'll give you a few examples. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, were killed instantly when they offered strange incense before the Lord. And the Lord told Moses, tell Aaron, don't you say a word about it. This was spiritual wickedness that they did. Uzzah was killed. Remember, they were carrying the cart on the the, the Ark of the Covenant on that cart and the oxen stumbled. He reached up to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling into the mud. But you're not allowed to touch the Ark. You can't touch the ark. You and I cannot go to God without a mediator. If we do, we'll die. That's spiritual wickedness. God struck us a dead that very moment. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy. It took a while apparently for him to die, but he was struck with um, all over his whole body immediately with leprosy because he went to offer incense before the Lord. Now that's the job of the high priest, never the king. He assumed the role of Christ, the high priest, and God struck him with leprosy for it. So this must have been some sort of spiritual wickedness. Spiritual wickedness hadn't departed from the earth like this was only an Old Testament thing. Spiritual wickedness, idolatry, trying to establish our own righteousness, trying to be our own high priest, trying to represent our own selves to God because we don't think that we need Christ to be our high priest. That's spiritual wickedness. Alive and well, isn't it? And that kind of wickedness deserves instant and eternal damnation. What that is, is, is trying to be our own high priest, saying, I don't need Christ to, to be saved. I can do this on my own. That's shaking our fists in the face of Almighty God, saying, I don't need your son. That's what that is. Now that's the wicked nature that you and I are born with. And you and I will perish too. Unless God intervenes in grace. And Ur, I'm not picking on him because he's far from the only one being wicked in this story, isn't it? His brother Onan refused to raise up a child to his, his brother's name. That was the, the custom of the day. You know, if an older brother died and didn't have children, the younger brother would, would marry the, the woman and, and the first child 
would not be his child, would not be legally seen as his child, be seen as his brother's. You know why Onan didn't want to have a child with Tamar? It would take away from his inheritance. He'd have to share it with this boy or this child, whoever it was. He didn't want to do it. Just greedy. That's all it was to do. Just greedy. And Lord killed him for it. You and I share the same selfish nature, don't we? We can understand being selfish. We've got the same nature. And Judah, I mean, we, we expect so much from Judah, don't we? Judah, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah is the one the Messiah is coming through. We expect so much from Judah. Judah was wicked too. Look at verse 11. Then said Judah to Tamar, after his two sons died, to his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house, till Sheila, my son, be grown. For, he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. It sure seems like Judah lied to Tamar. He never intended for his third son to marry this woman because he didn't want him to die. I mean, this, it's not faring too well for men who, who marry Tamar. You know, they end up dying. And Judah seems determined he's going to keep his last son as far away from Tamar as he could. Now, when Tamar was married to Judah's sons, she was barren. Being married to those sons, try as she might. She wanted children. She desperately wanted children. I'll show you that in a minute. But she couldn't give birth to a child. She couldn't conceive life in her womb being married to Judah's sons. And that's given to us as a picture of the law. No son of Adam can produce life by our obedience to the law. We can't establish righteousness by our obedience to the law. Sandy was telling me about a group that said, well now, God, God sent Jesus into the world, but he's not God. He's just an example of how we're supposed to live. And we're not, she and I were talking, I was like, what good did that do us? We can't, we can't live up to the example. We can't be perfect. We can't do that. Christ came as more than an example, didn't he? Christ came because you and I can't keep the law. We can never establish righteousness or life by our obedience to the law. All our efforts at keeping the law can produce is death. That's all it can produce because we're guilty. And Judah, he just wasn't going to have his third son marry Tamar. So it looked to Tamar like she's never going to have a child. And she wanted a child. She wanted a child more than anything. Well, her solution to this problem is evil. We read what she did. She went and played the harlot so she could have a child with Judah, her father-in-law. And she's far from the only one being, I mean, it amuses me in Scripture when they're talking about adultery. They only ever bring the woman out, right? She wasn't acting in this thing alone. Judah was there too. Judah was, was wicked in this thing too. This man went into a harlot. And Tamar's wicked plan, that's a wicked plan, but it worked. She conceived a child when she played the harlot with her father-in-law. Now, you know, that's still a picture of the law. There is nothing more wicked than for you and me to try to establish our own righteousness by obeying the law ourselves. There's nothing more wicked than that. There's nothing more wicked than that because trying to establish my own righteousness means I'm not submitting myself to the righteousness of Christ. I'm saying I don't need Christ's righteousness. I can do this on my own. The father just wasted his time sending his son to this earth because 
I do, I don't need him. I can establish my own righteousness. The father, not only did he waste his time, he's a monster when he sacrificed his son for sin because I can take care of my sin problem, my own self. Thank you very much. Boy, you, you see how that draws the anger of God Almighty? I'll tell you the sin that damns men and women. It's not lying. It's not cheating. It's not stealing. It's not killing. It's not keeping the Sabbath day. The only sin that damns men and women is the sin of self-righteousness. Unbelief. It's the only sin. If you're not trying to make your own self-righteous, if you see, I can't make myself righteous, I can't obey the law. I need mercy. I need grace. You go to God and ask for forgiveness for Christ's sake. You ask for mercy for Christ's sake. You'll receive it. You surely will. But if you insist on on coming to God in your own righteousness, your own obedience, your own good works, trusting yourself rather than trust Christ, you'll perish. That's exactly right. Now, when you think of it in that light, to the believer now, somebody that knows Christ, somebody that trusts Christ, you've, you by faith, you've seen him. You haven't seen him as clearly as you want to, but you've seen him, haven't you? And once you've seen him, you see this, the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of my self-righteousness is more embarrassing than anything in this story we just read. Isn't it? If you've seen Christ, you see that, don't you? Now all of this is so wicked. Yet the Lord is merciful anyway. The Lord saves vile, wretched, guilty sinners. That's the only kind of sinners he saved. They see themselves as vile and guilty and wretched. And you know why God still saves those, those people? Gary, because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That's exactly why. Salvation is by God's grace. And God's grace alone. Pure grace. And it has to be that way. Because we're so wicked. The wickedness of sin. Second, I want us to see this. God's purpose always comes to pass. Always. Now it's God's purpose that the Messiah come through Judah. He hadn't said that yet and as far as I know, not till Jacob blesses his sons, but you and I know at this point, we know this. It was God's purpose that the Messiah come through Judah. Judah had three sons. Now two of them are dead. He's afraid third one's going to die. It doesn't look too good for that third one if he marries Tamar, does it? I mean, the track record here, you know, is not good. Well, if none of Judah's sons have children, how will the Messiah ever come? How's that possible? If he's got to come through Judah, but Judah doesn't have any sons that are producing sons, how is this ever going to be possible that the Messiah come through Judah? It looks to me like Judah's line is getting ready to end with him, doesn't it? And if Judah doesn't have any children, doesn't have grandchildren, great children, grandchildren, great, great, then the Messiah will never come. Well, this is scary. Is God's purpose going to fail? Is God going to have to come up with, with plan B because Judah messed this whole thing up? Of course not. Of course not. God always brings his purpose to pass. Always. Now what Judah and Tamar did is reprehensible. There's no excuse for what they did. Tamar 
played the harlot. She committed incest with her father-in-law on purpose for money. Pretty vile, isn't it? In Judah, Judah, the, the respected family man, the respected leader in the community, he goes and pays a harlot? Jan's grandmother would say, I mean, it's just vile, isn't it? It's just, it's embarrassing. And Judah and Tamar, they're responsible. They're responsible for their sin. They're responsible for what they did. They committed this sin of their own free will. And just in case you want to know, this is where free will always leads. Our free will is only free to act on what our nature is. Our free will will always do this. Sin. I mean, vile and wretched. And it's their fault. Yet their actions accomplish God's will. Now I can't fully explain all that. I just know it's true. I stand amazed how God can do that. He, he's done it time and time and time again. The two most clear examples that I can think of in Scripture are these. Adam in the garden took that fruit and he ate it. Knowing exactly what he was doing. His eyes were wide open. He did it in open rebellion against God. It was Adam's free will choice. See, Adam had a choice to make. Obey God or disobey God. What was his free will? Disobey God. And Adam is fully responsible for his sin. Adam suffered the consequences of his sin. You and I suffer it today, don't we? But when Adam sinned, you know what he did? He accomplished the eternal will of God Almighty, even though God's not the author of sin. When Adam sinned, he opened the way for salvation by God's grace that's in Christ Jesus. And that was God's eternal purpose. The second example I can think of is the cross. At the cross, wicked men, Jew and Gentile alike, did everything their wicked hearts wanted to do. Now they did what they wanted to do because they chose to do it. Nobody was forcing them to do it. Nobody was going through the Old Testament scripture and say, okay, boys, now you got to do this. Now you got to do this. Now you got to do this. By their own free will choice, they did everything exactly like the Old Testament scripture said they did. Now they did what they wanted to do and they're responsible for it. But when they did what they wanted to do, I mean, it's, it's the most heinous crime ever committed on the face of this planet. Yet in that heinous crime, you know what they did? They accomplished God's eternal purpose to redeem his people by the sacrifice and death of his son. See, man does what he wants to do. But when he does, he always accomplishes God's will. Always. Every event in creation takes place because that is the eternal will of God. And that's the only thing that can guarantee the redemption of sinners like Tamar. Here's the third thing. In this story, we see what kind of people it is that Christ came to save. Now think if Tamar was in your family tree. After all of this, if you were Tamar's mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, here's how I bet you we'd handle this situation. We would just kind of bury her name 
We just won't really talk about her. We won't really use her name much. And, and just hopefully people will soon forget about Tamar. You know, the, the new cycle will go around. People have something else to think about. As long as we don't keep her name out there, people will forget about Tamar. And our family won't have to bear the shame of what she did anymore. That's kind of how we want to handle it, isn't it? I mean, we just, you know, let's not use her name out there too much. We don't want to be associated with her name. You know, she, she's bringing us all down here. Let's just hope everybody forgets about old Tamar. You know, the Lord didn't do that. He did not allow that to happen. This is so interesting. I never thought about this until I was looking up Tamar's name throughout Scripture. When Boaz proposed to Ruth, and he's getting ready to to marry Ruth, you know what the women of that town said to Boaz and to, to Ruth? Ruth 4, verse 12. Let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah. Now they bring up this at this at this glorious event. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, and Ruth. They remembered Tamar. And you know what they remembered about Tamar? Tamar and her sons were blessed of God. They said. Boaz and Ruth, we want you to be blessed of God the same way. You don't deserve it any more than Tamar did. Our prayer to you is, God bless you because God's gracious. That's what they were saying. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? That just chills up and down my spines. Tamar was blessed for Christ's sake. And nobody forgot her sin because they said she bore this of Judah. They didn't forget her sin. We shouldn't forget our sin either. Because you know why? Our sin is what magnifies God's grace. I remember, we remember our sin. We're ashamed of it. I mean, I don't want to brag about it, but it's our sin that magnifies God's grace. As awful as my sin is, God's grace still abounds over it. Still abounds over it. Oh, my prayer for this sinner is, God bless me like he, like he blessed Tamar. All throughout Scripture, the Lord does not cover up the sin of His people. In First Chronicles chapter two, and it starts listing the genealogy of Jacob's sons, and it gets to, to Judah. Talked about Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bare him Phares and Zerah. All the sons of Judah were five. He had the first three with his wife, and the last two with his daughter-in-law. And Scripture did not cover it up; they exposed his sin. So that, not just to embarrass Judah, not to try to make us scared of, you know, oh, well, I won't commit that sin, because we will. The Lord exposes the sin of his people so that his glory in forgiving their sin is exposed. And that, here's another one of those contradictions you can only answer in a believer. Hearing that will never make a believer say, well, I'm going to sin more that God's grace may abound, that his glory, no, 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 we're not going to say that. What I'm saying is this, our sin is exposed so that God's glory in forgiving it is exposed. And then, when the Lord Jesus was born, the Son of God, the Son of God, in human flesh was born. And they listed his genealogy just like they listed genealogy of many of the Old Testament fathers. The Holy Spirit included the name 
Tamar in the genealogy of the Savior. Now they only, usually only used the father's names in these genealogies, these Jewish genealogies. But in the genealogy of our Savior, there's five women listed. And number one is Tamar, who played the harlot. Number two is Rahab, who lived as a harlot. She was a harlot. Number three is Ruth, the idolater. Number four, her name is not mentioned, but she's this event is uh, mentioned. Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. And then there's Mary, the mother of our Lord, who was a nobody. My friends, that's who Christ came to save. You know, if you and I would list our genealogies, we leave out the names of notorious sinners. And we leave out the names of nobodies. They're not worth mentioning. You know, we want to list uh, in our genealogies, you know, find outstanding people who, who accomplished great things. But it came time to list the genealogy of the Savior. He didn't do that. He listed those who played the harlot, were a harlot, was an idolater, committed um, adultery, and a nobody. And you know why he did that? He could have left Tamar's name out. He could have left this whole sordid affair out of his genealogy, but he didn't because the Lord is identifying himself with Tamar. He was numbered with the transgressors. He identified himself with Tamar because that's who he came to save. And the same thing's true of the other four women. I hope you can see yourself as Tamar because if you can, the Lord Jesus Christ came to save you. He came to have mercy on you because he came to save sinners. Then here's the last thing. Here's a beautiful picture. How it is that the Lord Jesus Christ saves his people. Now they're, they're sinners. God's got a purpose to save them. He came to save them. He came to identify with them and save them. And here's how he does it. Here's how he takes them and makes them white as snow. Look at verse 13. We'll read this again. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear a sheep. And she put off her widow's garments from off her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. And she saw that Shelah was, was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. And when Judah saw her, he, he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Well, what will you give me as a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in her, unto her, and she conceived by him. Now Judah's going to pay a kid of his flock to Tamar. Of course, he didn't have the, the kid with him. I mean, not leading around by a leash, you know, it was up there in the field. So he gave her a pledge. And, you know, the deal is when he gives Tamar the kid, she'll give him the pledge back. Well, later on, he sends his buddy, you know, to, to find her, to give her the kid, to get his pledge. She's gone. He can't find her. 
She kept his pledge. Now this pledge is very significant. This pledge is the key to understanding this entire chapter. The pledge that he gave was was Judah's signet. It was his ring. That's what identified him. They, you know, they would use their ring to stamp a, a, the, the wax or something. That's their seal. He gave her his ring. Everybody recognized Judah's ring. Then he gave her his bracelet. And it wasn't actually a bracelet that would go around his wrist. It was a bracelet or a cord, a wound cord that went around his neck like a lanyard. That's what he hung the ring on. He didn't wear the ring actually on his finger. He, he wore it on this lanyard. And he gave her the staff. That was in his hand. This is what he used to, to walk by as he'd go to and fro. Those three items, that's Judah's identity. Everybody would recognize those as Judah's. It would be like us giving somebody as a pledge our social security card and our driver's license. You know, they could take anything they want from us if they had those things, right? Tamar, she kept the pledge. She kept Judah's identity. She's got his identity now. She keeps it for three months. Three months later, look at verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth and let her be burnt. Someone told Judah Tamar played the harlot and got pregnant. And Judah said, boys, bring her out. We're going to burn her at the stake. We're going to burn her alive. He said that knowing he's guilty of the very same sin. Now, he didn't know it was with her yet. But knowing he was guilty of the very same sin, he was going to preside over burning this woman at the stake. I mean, the religious hypocrisy of this. And this is what I was mentioning earlier. I mean, I've got zero tolerance for it. Religious hypocrisy. Is there anything worse than that? I'm telling you, we're a mess. We're a mess. Unless God keep us from it, we do the same thing Judah did. And scripture talks about that, about you condemning people for something and you yourselves are guilty of the very same thing. That's us. Well, read on, verse 25. In all this mess, now comes the glory of Christ. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, I am I with child. And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signets and the bracelets and the staff. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shulah, my son. And he knew her again no more. Uh, Tamar is getting ready to be burnt at the stake. How was she spared? Everybody agreed she needs to be burned at the stake. How was she? How was she spared? It's because she had Judah's identity. She had his ring. She had his lanyard, and he had. She had his staff. She identified as Judah. That's how she was spared. Now that's a picture. I've preached everything I've preached to get right here. This is so glorious. This is a picture of how God's elect have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how it is? 
It's by the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of God in human flesh, giving his people his identity. This is not identity theft. This is not some forged paperwork like we're using a a, a fake ID. The Lord Jesus Christ actually gave his people his identity because he made them what he is. He made them what he is. Even the Father sees no difference between the Son and his love because the Son gave them his identity. You and I, it would be laughable for us to come in prayer before the throne of God thinking we'd ever be heard if we didn't have Christ's identity. That the Father hears us, loves us, accepts us exactly as He would His own Son because we have His identity. That's what accepted in the Beloved means. The Lord Jesus Christ gave His people His reign. He sealed them. He stamped his image. He effaced Adam's image and stamped his image in its place. He made them what he is. That rain, typically we think of the rain being worn on, on the hand. God's people are the works, the work of God's hand. He made them just like his son. Gave them his identity. And he gave his people his walk. That's what that staff represents. Judah used that walking, especially through the pastures and hills and things, you know, where the the sheep were. He used that staff to to walk by. That's his his walk. The Lord Jesus Christ gave his people his walk. And his walk is his conduct. It's his conduct as a man made under the law. When Christ was made under the law, what did he do? He obeyed it perfectly. Obeyed it in every jot and every tittle. And he gave his people that obedience. He gave them his identity. Since he's the representative of his people, they did everything he did because they were in him when they did it. When Christ obeyed the law, so did you, if you're in Christ. See, he gave you his identity. He gives his people his righteousness by making them righteous. Giving them his righteousness. Now look over Psalm 69. I want to show you two scriptures to to show this point. This is not just some sort of doctrine that sovereign gracers believe. This is what scriptures teach. At the beginning of the chapter, it says Judah went down. I guess he got tired of being with his brothers and selling Joseph off and all the things going on there. He went down to get away from them. The Lord Jesus Christ, he went down, didn't he? He went down. When he came to where his people are. He went down. Down, 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 down. To be made what his people are. So that he could redeem them from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ took the sin of his people. And made that sin his sin. Christ was punished by his father. Put to death by his father. Executed. Sacrificed. He wasn't being executed for somebody else's sin because that would be unjust. Would it be unjust for you to to be put to death for a murder that somebody else committed? I mean, we'd scream and yell and jump up and down. That's unjust. Christ wasn't put to death for somebody else's sin. He was put to death for his sin, even though he never committed any sin. 
You understand that. He never committed any sin. But he made the sin of his people his sin. And I can show you that even though he never committed a sin, he said it's his. Psalm 69, verse 5. This is Christ from the cross. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. He wasn't hanging on the cross saying, Father, now you know the foolishness of my people. You know the, the sin of my people. He called it my foolishness and my sin. The sin of God's elect became Christ's. They became his. And you know what he did in trade? He took the sin of his people and made it his. And put it that sin away. By his precious blood. He paid the debt with his blood. Washed that sin white as snow in his blood. And he traded his people. His righteousness. He made them righteous. He gave them his identity. He made them righteous. Let me show you that. I quote this all the time. But let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Every once in a while. Even though we quote this. In, in most messages. Seems like that I preach anyway. You know, some people say they, they learn by, by a hearing and some people learn by doing, some by seeing. Well, let's make sure we see it this time. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He, God the Father, hath made Him, and that word to be, you notice that's in italics. That means that was added by the translators. That was not in the original. The Apostle Paul did not write to be. What the Apostle Paul wrote was something more accurate. He hath made Him sin. He made his son sin for us. Him who knew no sin, that we might be made. Not legal paperwork shuffling. Made the righteousness of God in him. That's how a sinner is redeemed. It's because we've been given Christ's identity. So that the father sees no difference. That's how we're righteous. That's how we're holy. That's how we're accepted. I like being accepted in Christ a whole lot better than hoping I can act good enough to be accepted on my own, don't you? To have the identity of Christ the Savior and not have to come before God in my identity, best news I've ever heard. Best, and that's a miracle of God's grace. Isn't it? All right. Hope I'll be a blessing to you. Let's bow together. Our Father, how we thank you for this time that you've given us together to look into your word and to one more time hear of Christ our Savior. Father, I pray you'd bless your word as it's gone forth. You promised that your word would never return unto you void. Father, we pray that your purpose this evening, sending your word forth, is a purpose of redemption. It's a purpose of edifying and comforting and strengthening the hearts of your people and drawing poor sinners to Christ our Savior. It's in his precious name. For his sake and his glory we pray. Amen. All right. John, come lead us in a closing hymn.